This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. It's been 3,312 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 393 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Russian combat potential is fading across the entire theater of war, and the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective. Second, we assess that the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut remains in a critical state and is fluid, but defensive lines have been stabilized. Third, we maintain that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear that's Seaburn, weapons, the Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut, regardless of the cost. Fourth, we maintain that Russian forces are experiencing a perceived shortage of non-precision artillery munitions theater-wide. Fifth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident due to the de-energization of Ukraine's electrical grid as long as the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, continues to target Ukraine's power industry. Sixth, we maintain that the Russian MOD is actively working to eliminate the influence of private military company or PMC Wagner Group and its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin, both on and off the battlefield. Seventh, we maintain the Kremlin is actively attempting to topple the legitimate government of Moldova. And finally, we maintain the Kremlin is also actively interfering with the Georgian government's attempt to join the European Union. One year ago yesterday, on March 23, 2022, residents of Kyiv were put under a three-day curfew as Ukraine launched counteroffensives north, northwest, and east of the city. Ukrainian troops reached Borodyanka and were fighting Chechen Akhmat. The Kyiv suburb of Makariv was brought under Ukrainian military control. Russian forces, unable to find victory on the battlefield, 
heavily shelled civilians and civilian infrastructure in Cherniv, Kharkiv, and Mykolaiv. Fighting for control of Izum continued. In Mariupol, the Azov Battalion fell back to the Azovstal metallurgical plant, and on the coast of the Azov Sea, a Russian Raptor-class patrol boat was hit by an ATGM. Russian forces targeted Severodonetsk, hitting a crowded grocery store and a hospital. Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR officials, falsely claimed that Rubizhna and Popazna were captured. In Moscow, Russian Major General Vladislav Yershov of the 6th Combined Arms Army was dismissed due to heavy losses and failure to achieve his mission objectives. Combat photographer Max Levin was reported missing with the last contact on March 13th. Russian troops released a French reporter after nine days in captivity. He claimed Russian troops beat him, did mock executions, and pulled teeth out of his head. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. In the Svatova operational area, Russian attacks on Novoselivske ended. Russian forces shelled the village instead. In the Kremina operational area, the situation remains unchanged. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and Russian mercenary mill blogger Wargonzo reported fighting near Makievka with no change to the situation. Positional battles continue from Ploshanka to Zhitlivka, with heavier fighting reported in the forested areas west of Kremina. The GSAFU reported fighting near Dibrova, while the Russian MOD reported Ukrainian positions near Dibrova and Kuzmina were shelled. Russian forces attacked Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, throughout the day and were unsuccessful. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, Russian forces attempted to advance on Vesele from Yakovlivka without success. In the Bakhmut operational area, fighting was intense, but with less Russian artillery fire after yesterday's surge. Russian losses are described as extremely heavy, with Russian mill bloggers celebrating gains of 10 to 50 meters in some locations as a great military success. The intensity of fighting for control of Orikhovo-Vasilivka decreased, with PMC Wagner focusing more on the southern flank. Russian forces also tried to advance west toward Ryurivka without success. Wagner mercenaries used battalion-sized formations to attack Bohdanivka and Khromova and reportedly suffered losses in the hundreds. We recorded a 50-meter Russian gain north of Bohdanivka and adjusted the map. A geolocated video showed that the T-506 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, was still open and the bridge intact. The number of destroyed vehicles had increased. There was intense fighting in Bakhmut, with advances measured in meters and control of houses and buildings changing up to four times a day. There was a report that Ukrainian DRG units are operating on the east bank of the Bakhmutovka River and have turned a 300-meter-wide strip into a no-man's land. Some of the heaviest fighting in Ukraine centered around a five-story apartment building complex on the southern side of Korsunskoho Street. Despite the announced media blackout, reporters with AFP recorded a grad rocket attack fired by multiple launch rocket systems in Bakhmut. 
Fighting continued near Ivanivsky, with no change in the situation. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited with troops in Kostyantonivka, where he was presented with a battle flag. Zelensky also traveled to Kharkiv to meet with wounded soldiers and stopped at a gas station to get tea and meet with local residents. The GSAFU reported a Russian attack in the direction of Predtechene was repulsed for the second day in a row. The GSAFU also reported that attacks in the area of Klishyivka were repulsed, confirming that Ukrainian forces regained territory southeast of Ivanivsky. Yesterday, we noted that videos showed fighting on the northwest edge of Mayorsk. The GSAFU reported an attack was repulsed near the village. In southwest Donetsk, the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, continued somewhat disorganized attacks of large formations of ill-trained and unmotivated Mobics with insufficient armor and artillery support. Perhaps unsurprisingly, attacks in the areas of Novokalinove, Novobakhmutivka, Krasnohorivka, Stepova, and Berdichi were unsuccessful. To the south of Avdivka, Russian forces made large attacks but with dwindling combat power due to a lack of munitions, heavy weapons, and armor support. Russian DRG units were pushed back from Lastochkine by Ukrainian forces. One Russian mill blogger reported the Slavic brigade suffered heavy losses in today's fighting, and Russian troops continued their unsuccessful attempts to advance on Avdiivka from Opitne. There were also attacks on Sieverne and Pervomaiske, which were also repulsed. Closer to Vodiana, Russian forces attempted to retake some of the high ground north of the village, suffered heavy losses, and returned to their defensive lines. In the Marinka operational area, fighting restarted for control of the city's ruins and the Pobita pig farm with no change in the situation. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, many people in the city don't have reliable electrical power, water, sewer, or heat, but DNR officials had the resources to repair the fountain outside of the destroyed drama theater to enhance the Potemkin village. Because priorities. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Zaporizhia. In Zaporizhia, a nine-story apartment building was struck by two Russian Tornado S rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. Russian forces launched a so-called double-tap attack, with a second missile striking minutes later to maximize casualties. The attack wounded 34, including three children, and left 29 people hospitalized. Six more were recovered from the rubble during search-and-rescue operations, with one dying at the hospital. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, provided an update on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The 330-kilovolt line damaged by Russian artillery strikes on March 1st is still unrepaired, leaving the plant with a single 750-kilovolt connection to the electrical grid. Local officials told the IAEA inspectors at the plant that the 750-kilovolt line would have to be de-energized for repairs, but couldn't provide a when or how long. 
IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said, quote, Nuclear safety at the ZNPP remains in a precarious state. If this disconnection from the main power line and repair work is performed while the 330-kilovolt line is not available, it will cause a complete loss of power and will make the plant reliant on diesel generators, its last line of defense, for the seventh time. I once again call for a commitment from all sides to secure nuclear safety and security protection at the plant. End quote. Reactors 1 through 4 are in cold shutdown, while reactors 5 and 6 are in hot shutdown to produce steam for plant operations and heat and hot water for neighboring Enerjodar. Radiation levels at and around the plant are normal. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Natalia Humenyuk, Director of Communications for Operational Command South, or OCS, reported 15 vessels of the Black Sea fleet were on patrol, including two frigates and one kilo-class submarine, capable of launching up to 20-caliber cruise missiles in total. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces fired on each other's positions across the Dnipro River. Russian forces completed 46 fire missions on free Ukraine territory, striking the city of Kherson twice and wounding one person. At the Novokhovka Dam, Russian occupiers stemmed the flow of water through the damaged floodgate enabling the Kohovka Reservoir to start to refill. Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 kamikaze drones launched in the early morning hours damaged critical electrical infrastructure in Zhitomir Oblast. The impact was unclear, as the region was already experiencing significant power outages. In north and northeast Ukraine, at the Zhishchiv Vocational College of Construction and Economics in Zhishchiv, which was struck by up to three Shahed-136 kamikaze drones in the morning, the death toll climbed to eight, with seven more injured and one still missing. On the Russian front in Kursk, the sound and flash of an explosion were caught on security cameras. No damage was reported, and the source was unclear. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Colonel Yuri Ignat, the spokesperson of the Air Force of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, gave a stern warning to administrators of Telegram channels who are violating OPSEC, or operational security, in the name of clout. Some channels are reporting on the progress of drones and missiles in real time, inadvertently or intentionally providing information to the Russian MOD on Ukrainian air defense capabilities and locations. In some cases, screenshots of air defense systems displays have been shared. Ignat said, quote, The enemy takes this information into account when planning the next missile attack. He also is informed that in the near future, serious decisions may be made and even criminal cases may be opened. End quote. Colonel Ignat also denied a report in the French newspaper Le Figaro that Ukrainian pilots are being trained to fly French Mirage 2000 fighter aircraft. Speaking of mirages, let's talk about the Russian military and mobilization. There were pictures and videos of Block B Russian T-54 and T-55 tanks on railroad cars heading west from their Far East storage yard. The T-54-55 was designed at the end of World War II and introduced in 1954. 
The Block B modifications, which include improved Seaburn capabilities, were introduced in 1958. Some did not take it very well that the Russian MOD was digging into its post-World War II stockpile of tanks. PMC Wagner Channel Grayzone wrote, quote, It is possible that the T-54-55 will undergo some modernization following the example of the T-62M and acquire the coveted postscript, the T-54 of the 2023 model, which will certainly be better than nothing. But in general, the tendency to diversify equipment in an auxiliary way, to put it mildly, is a little depressing. End quote. Quick sidebar. Remember, the enhanced so-called don't-say-war law is forcing mill bloggers to soften their language. The two Russian Su-27 pilots who didn't shoot down, harass, strike, dump fuel on, or come close to an American MQ-9 Reaper drone, according to the Russian Federation, were awarded medals by Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for attacking and destroying the MQ-9 Reaper drone. They didn't attack it, it crashed on its own due to pilot error after they shot it down in glorious battle. Okay, they didn't shoot it down. They slammed into it, but they are heroes. The pilots that fought the most courageous aerial battle of the last 10 years are Major Serhii Popov and Major Vasily Vavilov. Quick sidebar, is rough and tough Russia handing out participation trophies? While two pilots got medals for waking up in the morning, Mobics in 52 of Russia's 85 regions are experiencing pay issues, in some cases, not receiving pay since November 2022. If I've mathed correctly, that's like five months. That's 38.5% of the war. Some Mobics and volunteers shared pictures of their pay stubs, showing that official pay was zero. Relatives have been reporting what we assessed with the Mobic videos, you know, the ones where they're complaining that they're being transferred to the DNR and forced to turn in their RMOD military IDs. The Russian Unified Settlement Center told one spouse that her husband had been fired from one unit and not transferred to another. She told reporters, quote, The whole company is listed as dismissed, but not enlisted in another company. We got to the unit commander. He replied that they did not put him on a monetary allowance either. End quote. Wives and girlfriends of the 126th Separate Guards Coastal Defense Brigade of the Black Sea Fleet took to social media to complain that their loved ones did not receive adequate training before deployment and were being used as, quote, cannon fodder by their commanders. Yevgeny Prigozhin sent multiple letters to Russian charities looking for financial support for PMC Wagner. While Prigozhin continues to have a pity party, there is significant evidence that other operational areas were depleted of artillery munitions to support the failing offensive push that started 48 hours ago. If you were wondering about the Victory Day parade coming up in Moscow, Russian Defense Minister Shoigu confirmed the show would go on, but at an even smaller scale than last year. Shoigu estimates that 125 pieces of military hardware and about 10,000 soldiers will be involved. What are the chances that they are stealth mobilizing specifically for the Victory Day Parade. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we continue yesterday's report on kidnapped Ukrainian children. Seventeen more children who were deported to Russia have been repatriated, 
The children are from Kherson and Kharkiv. During the occupation, they were moved further into the occupied territories or to the territory of Russia under the promise they were only going to summer camp. But after the deoccupation, the Russians refused to organize the return of the children, and the parents were told they would have to solve the problem on their own. So far, only 335 kidnapped children have been returned to Ukraine. As we were recording the episode today, it was announced that two more children were returned to their parents, bringing the total up to 337 kidnapped children who have been returned to Ukraine. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.